Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We work with leaders to identify disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations into industry leaders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that today our guest is Dr. Rick Brinkman, and we're going to talk about how to bring out the best in people at their worst. So Dr. Brinkman is best known for his conscious communication expertise conveyed to millions of people by way of keynotes and trainings in his trademark educating through entertainment style. He's performed over 4,000 programs in 18 countries, so we're quite fortunate to have him joining us as a guest. He is the co-author of six McGraw-Hill books, including the two million copy international bestseller that is on my shelf, Dealing with People You Can't Stand, How to Bring Out the Best in People at Their Worst, which has been translated into 25 languages. His latest book is Dealing with Meetings You Can't Stand, Meet Less and Do More, which uh, I assume will be an immediate bestseller. So the outcome for today's session, everyone has experienced people acting in ways they can't stand. Dr. Brinkman literally co-wrote the book on dealing with people that you can't stand and how to bring up the best in people at their worst, which I think is the biggest point here is we all have times when uh, other people frustrate us and we don't know how to navigate that struggle so that we can bring out the best in folks that we know we need to deal with. And in some cases, folks we really value, but their styles are just difficult. So Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, no problem. Wherever there's difficult people, I'll be there. <laughs> so can you tell us about some of your clients before we jump into the the meat of how to improve communication? Well, it's this is such a universal topic. You know, I've had uh, a lot of government. Uh, a few weeks ago, I did uh, a keynote at uh, NASA. I had about 500 people, and it was streamed to all their locations on conflict resolution. A while back, I did the astronauts. I've done the FBI, the Department of Defense. So there's government clients, and then there's corporate Lockheed Martin, Adobe, uh, Boeing regularly uses my online class. Um, so it seems to be a universal topic, and uh, I'm very surprised as as my co-author that the book could be translated in 25 languages because different cultures have some very specific rules about the communication game and what's appropriate, and yet it seems to be something that. Uh, Everyone relates to. So the bad news is everyone in the world can't stand each other. And the good news, it's good for my business. Well, and the good news is you've got tools to help people navigate this so that they can get the best out of working together. Yes, definitely. 
communication is like a phone number. You know, you need all the digits and you need them in the right order. If you happen to turn a six into a nine, it's only a 10% error, but the call does not get through. If you dial the area code at the end as an afterthought, the call does not get through. Communication is equally specific. Wonderful. So we're going to talk in the first segment about conscious communication and the top 10 negative behaviors. So what is conscious communication and what are the four choices you always have with people? Well, conscious communication is about paying attention to the cause-effect relationship between what you do and what you get. You could think of people like musical instruments. We play them with our behavior. So if we don't like the tune we're getting, if we change something in ourselves, we'll get something different uh, over there. And in general, as a conscious communicator, you're learning from all your experience, whether you just had a great interaction that just flowed with somebody or you had a terrible interaction. If you take a moment to debrief and go, all right, well, well, what worked there? Why did that work? Or why didn't that not? work, you're on an ever-expanding course of getting better and better. So the four choices you have is, look, number one, you could do nothing and suffer. But that's the problem, because suffering falls into that category. Uh, you could leave. Uh, in doing research for the book Dealing with Relatives, you know what the number one coping strategy is? Geography. Get far enough away. I mean, not all situations are worth it. You know, you got to weigh, is it worth the time and the energy? And if not, you leave the job or the relationship. But the other two choices are you can change your attitude. This means you make a mental adjustment. And, you know, speaking of relatives, this is why a relative is tougher to deal with because it feels like there is no choice. You know, you 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 don't choose your siblings. You don't choose your parents. Yeah, you choose your spouse. Technically, they're not a relative. And then the spouse comes along with bonus people. But uh, you can always adjust your attitude internally. And then something that goes really hand in hand with that is you change your behavior. If you do something different, they do something different. And there are some very consistent patterns of what needs to be done with the 10 most difficult behaviors. So with those choices, we talk about people we can't stand, and I, I assume all of our listeners have encountered someone like that. Why do people act the way they do? As, a, as an economist, I, I was taught that people are rational self-maximizers, and yet we see some behaviors that seem not rational or maximizing. Well, when they're under stress, uh, they can shift their behavior. Uh, I think one thing before I even say why people, it's very important to separate personality from behavior. Uh, behavior is fluid, it's constantly changing. One minute a person's normal, then they blow up and throw a tantrum, then they withdraw and they're quiet, then they're whining, then there's something else. Behavior changes according to these two critical factors, context, where are we, what's going on, and relationship, who we're with. You know, let's say you're in your work environment and a person is acting a certain way. You'll want different things if your relationship to them is they're your boss, they're a team member, they're somebody from the outside world, a customer, a client. Same place, same behavior, but depending on relationship, what you want may change. On the other hand, make the relationship constant. You're with a spouse or someone you're committed to. Issue comes up in the context of a restaurant, you may want different things than if the same issue comes up in the context of your home. So what you have to keep in mind is that Behavior is almost like clothing, you know, depending on where you're going, what the weather is, what the event is, who you're going to be with, you're going to put on different types of clothing. Now, a lot of times it seems that people are a certain way, but that's because we only know them in a limited context or a limited relationship. So you see them in a certain mode. You know, I hear I'm a professional speaker. My wife would tell you she has to come to a seminar to hear me speak. 
Of course, I explained to her, honey, I'm a professional. You have to pay me. Even, uh, I know, bet that uh, went oh, over well. <laughs> Actually, she gave me that joke. Uh, all of us with children, you know, a child comes back from the neighbor. neighbor says, oh, how polite and helpful they are. What? My child? So you got to think behavior. That's the first, first step. And with that, uh, my co-author and I came up with this lens of understanding of why do people act the way they do. So we have a cooperation zone, and there are four intents that we all have. We want to get things done. We want to get those things done right. We want to get along with people, and we want to get appreciated by people. Now, when people are in get-it-done mode, what's going to happen is uh, they're going to be more assertive. They're going to push forward to make it happen. That's part of getting things done, and they're certainly going to focus on the task at hand. They're not going to ask you about how your weekend is or how's the family. On the other hand, if people are in the get it right mode, they're certainly going to focus on the task, but now they're going to get less assertive because they got to, whoa, 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 slow it down, make sure the details get covered. Now, one's not right and one's not wrong. There's obviously a balance between these two factors that we always have to achieve. It's important to get along with people. If we want to get along, then that's who we focus on, people, but in those cases, we get less assertive because we put our own needs aside to make sure others are happy. I mean, this is what happens when people go to lunch. You want to go to lunch? Sure. Where would you like to go? Oh, I don't know. Where would you like to go? Oh, I don't know. Are you hungry? I don't know. Are you? Do we really not know if we're hungry? We could figure it out. But what we're doing is we're making our own needs secondary to please someone else. It's part of getting along. And then last but not least, it's important to be appreciated by people. And if you want to be appreciated, that's who you focus on, people. And in those cases, tend to get more assertive because you try to contribute. Ooh, ooh, you ever gone to this place for lunch? What? You haven't? Everybody, let's go now. So these are the four basic intents, and when we're in the cooperation zone together, there aren't any issues between us, but if people are really not getting what they need, then they go to this next level, which we call the yellow zone, caution. So then tell us about the yellow zone. The four, the four behaviors make sense in the cooperation zone. Okay. Well, let's say uh, somebody needs to get something done. The deadline is upon us. We're depending on some of our team members. We go to check on their progress and we see them uh, just running around like the proverbial chicken without a head. Uh, that's going to stress us out. So we're going to go, all right, people, look, let's do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do that. Control. Control is what evolves out of a need to get it done. Because if you can control it, then you can make it happen. On the other hand, let's say we need to get things right and the people we depend on for information are telling us, mm, it's about 50, I think. About, you think? Then we're going uh, deeper into perfection, into those details no one else is paying attention to. If we want to get along, we're not sure it's happening, we go into approval, do things to make sure everything's okay between us. And if we want to be appreciated, it's not happening, we go into attention, get people to notice. Now, that yellow zone, though a little bit more behaviorally extreme, is not necessarily a problem. And in fact, sometimes it's a solution. Somebody takes charge and moves us forward. Somebody makes sure the details get covered. But if people get a little too stressed out, <laughs> that's where the red zone comes in, the danger zone. Okay, so let's talk about the red zone then. All right, well, let's say people need to get it done and uh, things are not happening. Uh, what can easily happen is tank. All right, people, look, this is what we're going to do. What are your genetic mistakes? You've been working on this two weeks. You're already four weeks behind. Now, here's what we're going to do. Parliament dissolved. I'm in control. 
it's a it's a, a direct attack. They just run right over you. It's very black and white. You're either part of moving forward or you get eliminated. Anything that takes too long escalates the attack. Anything they think is a waste of time escalates the attack. Anything they see as forward motion tends to de-escalate the attack. Uh, a tank attack is basically a demand for action. It's not... It's not control for the sake of control. It's about making something happen. What you also get out of control is a, another kind of behavior that's a little more suppressed. It's sniping. You know, so let's say uh, I have an issue. Maybe somebody got the promotion I think I should have gotten. So they stand up at a meeting and they're talking and I mumble, yeah, I got a great idea. Let's play horse. I'll be the head. You just be yourself. Ooh, don't get all emotional, can't you take a joke? Sniping to the face or maybe behind the back. Gossip can be the same category, uh, purposely spread to cut people down. Uh, the sniper is basically not getting mad, they're getting even. The third behavior that you come out of in that control area is know-it-all behavior. That's right, I know the 99%. I'm happy to tell you how much I know. Go on and on and on, dominate meetings, take us down unnecessary tangents. But of course, I'll never listen to your clearly inferior ideas. Now, if we compare tank behavior to know-it-all behavior, we find that know-it-all is definitely not as task-focused as tank Uh Somebody who's become a tank is not going to waste a minute to impress us. They really don't care what we think or feel. But with Nodal, you got ego operating there. And so uh, because of that ego, they want to dominate and tell you what they know. Let's shift mental gears. Let's go to get it right. Now, from get it right, I could see what could be perfection. I look at what is, what is, does not measure up to what could be. And then I feel helpless to do anything about it. That's how whining starts. And... Uh, when people whine, they have radar, but it sounds like, boop, boop, oh, there's a problem. Oh, there's another one. Pick it up. Put it in my bag. And another one. And another one. And finally, the bag gets too heavy, so they come to you. Here. Sniping, uh, excuse me, uh, whining is an inherent feeling of being helpless, the victim. It could be in relation to circumstances or disempowered with people, or sometimes, ironically, it's in relation to their own high standard of what they think should really be. Other people do not become helpless. Instead, they can go hopeless, and that's when you get no behavior, negativity. Forget it. We tried it. Nothing ever changes. Every silver cloud has a dark lining. You suggest an idea to them. They say, pull. Boom. Got that idea. What you also get out of that area of the lens is fine. Do it your way. Don't come crying to me when it doesn't work out. And from that point on, I say, nothing. That's nothing behavior. Now, you also get nothing from the get-along area of the lens because if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. I wouldn't want you to be mad at me, so I say, I wouldn't want to hurt your feelings, so I say. On the other hand, if you want something from me, I want something from you, your approval, so I'm very agreeable. Uh, I agree with everything at meetings, but then you might find out something different later behind the back. Uh, if I'm upset about something, I would keep the lid on it, and so it's very easy to me for me to fall into a passive-aggressive, where I'm a nice yes person to your face, and then a sniper behind the back. Uh, you also get maybe behavior when faced with a decision. I'm sure all of us at one point have told a salesperson, I'll think about it. Well, you really weren't planning on thinking about it. That's all approval-oriented behavior. Lastly, we go into our uh, get attention zone, and this is where you get the grenade. Nobody cares, that's the problem of the world today, it's the government's fault. 
it's it's a tantrum. The difference between tank and grenade is the tank should be in jail, grenade should be institutionalized. But really, it's a level of intent. A, a tank needs to do it. They take aim but leave other useful people in office equipment standing. A grenade blows up in 360 degrees, and you hear all this stuff that really has nothing to do with the present circumstances. An attack is a demand for action. A tantrum is a demand for attention. What you also get here is another kind of sniper. This is friendly fire, friendly teasing, people who like you. So they say, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. It could be friendly gossip. And then last but not least, you also get think they know it all, where people believe they're an expert and words come out their mouth, come back in both their ears, and they think, hey, this must be true. I just heard it twice. These are the 10 most difficult behaviors. And the truth of it is, all of us can do a version of them at different times and places, depending on context and relationship. We will have some that are more likely that we will do more often when we're under stress, also depending on context and relationship, uh, but it's just human behavior. Okay, so as we wrap up this segment, then it sounds like rational people who are trying to meet these four outcomes, and we all have them at some point, the focusing on getting it done, the I wanna get results, there are days I certainly want to get it right and get results. I focus on relationship and I focus on being appreciated. And each of those focuses, when things are not running well, can turn into one of these 10 negative behaviors. Is that an accurate summation of where we are right now? Yes, that is perfectly accurate. Cool. So this this tells me why reasonable people periodically behave in ways that are seemingly against their own interest. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cool. So let's wrap this seg- segment and we will be right back. I will ask our listeners during break, think about times when you have yourself demonstrated some of these behaviors, maybe behaviors you wish you had not, uh, and what caused you to get there? You know, as we leave a meeting and we think that wasn't my best day and I'm not always sure why I did it. Think about the the four main motivations and where do you fall most at risk? We'll be right back with Dr. Rick Brinkman, Maureen Metcalf, and we're talking about dealing with people that are difficult and how to bring out the best in people when they're at their worst. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. You're with Dr. Rick Brinkman and Maureen Metcalf. In the last segment, we talked about what are some of the difficult behaviors and more importantly, how do we get there? Uh, In this segment, we'll shift focus to what can a leader do about the negative behaviors? So Dr. Rick, let's start with, uh, you make a big deal that this is not a personality typing. Why is that so important to think about? Yeah, that's subtle, but it's huge. All right. First of all, you have to understand about yourself. Uh, we have a part of our brainstem called our reticular activating system. It has a multitude of functions, one of which is kind of like radar. So if you get married, all of a sudden you see everyone's getting married. And if you have are having children, it looks like a baby boom. And if we're interested in a certain car, there it goes again. A part of our brain is literally going and look, and then it it brings it to our conscious attention. And according to research done in the mid-50s, we could only consciously pay attention to seven plus or minus two things at any one time. So it's like a spotlight of attention. So going back to personality versus behavior, if I think somebody's personality is negative, guess what I noticed? There they are again. Told you so. I knew there'd always be that way. Nothing's going to work with that person. You could actually engage in the strategy for negativity and having quite an impact. Half the time they suggest a solution, but you know what? You will not even notice it. Be careful. We as human beings are programmed to selectively sort our perceptions to be right about whatever we believe in the first place. We do not want to be right that people are difficult. What we want to be right about is that we can influence their behavior. So personality is way too big of a generalization to be functionally useful because it's really how a person is in all contexts and all relationships. But we don't know anybody in all contexts and relationships. So you always have to assume they're capable of so much more and focus in on behavior here now How is this person acting and what does that mean they really need from me? And then you're going to start to see the subtle changes when you're influencing behavior in the right direction. That seems like a really important distinction and and it should be doable to focus on what I'm seeing right now rather than what I've seen over the history of this person's interactions with me. Exactly. That's exactly what you need to do because you only have seven bits of attention. And so if you don't uh, think behavior, you're going to miss something. You could really be on the right track with people and then totally not see it and abandon the right track. Well, I think it's also important, the the point you mentioned about uh, I'll grab onto something and miss other pieces of important data. And that will cause me to to go into my own spiral of frustration, even though this person over the course of my relationship with them may have been very constructive. Yes, exactly. And then you're triggered into a way that's not only not supporting you getting your result, but you might be then triggering them based on your trigger and we're going back and forth. 
So can to that point, can we change someone else's behavior? And I'm curious, how do we change our own as well? Well, you, you change other people's behavior by changing your own because people are going to respond to you. And so if you change something in yourself, you're going to get something uh, different. And that's why, you know, I mentioned earlier in the interview that you want to debrief yourself. All right, what, what worked in that situation? What didn't work? What do I always do with that person? What have I never tried with that person? Uh, I mean, personally, when I'm stuck in a situation and, and I'm not sure what to do, I ask myself, what's the last thing I would want to do right now? And whatever occurs to me, I force myself to do it. And I can't believe how many times that kind of unlocks the log jam and boom, we move forward in a constructive direction. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Because it's the last thing you want to do, of course, it's the thing you haven't done. And that's why it's stuck with that person or that type of person. Uh, you really, the overall strategy here is know what you want, pay attention. Are you getting what you want? If you're not getting what you want, you have a guarantee. It's not working. Anything else you do increases the likelihood of your success. That's called be flexible. And there are ways, of course, to be flexible specifically with all those behaviors. You know, there's the right thing to do when people are tanks or whining or whatever. Okay, so you talk about the importance of intent in your book, and that comes through really strongly. And I think that ties to what you just said, uh, know what you want. How does this play into communication? Well, if you think of communication like a phone number, then intent is your area code, and it puts you in the right general vicinity with people. What I saw early on in my career, especially working with couples, is that intent would be positive, but it wouldn't get expressed, and then a misunderstanding would occur. So let's say somebody's upset about something, their intent now is to clear the air. That's good intent. They go up to their partner, but they don't speak their intent. They just say, you know, I was upset the other day when you said da 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 because, and before they get any further, their partner's going to hear a sound in their mind like this. We are under attack. This is not a drill. Misunderstanding. If we speak intent up front, we say, I love you, I care about you, I hate to have something blocking our communication, I would like to clear the air. Now they know where you're coming from. Home is not where you go when you're tired of being nice to people. I mean, here's an example of a tank once. Uh, I was at a lost luggage claim. I'm the second person in line. The guy in front of me is attacking the person at the counter as if she purposely mislabeled his bags and sent them to El Salvador. All of a sudden, she puts her pen down. She looks him right in the eyes, and she calmly says, Sir, 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 I get you think we're idiots for losing your luggage, and this is terribly inconvenient for you. However, there are only two people at this counter who care about recovering your luggage, and of those two people, one of them is quickly losing interest. And he said, What do you need to know? (laughs) So... Think about what you told me. Your purpose is to get your bags back. My purpose is to get bags back. We have the same intent, and we're on the same side. That's that's intent. Brilliant. And I, I think of the many times that I have fallen short in just setting the context at the beginning of a conversation. I jump in as if everyone knows what I'm thinking. Yes. And, uh, it's, and it's right at the beginning. Absolutely. And here... Here's for your listeners. Anytime you're worried about somebody taking something the wrong way, that is a clear 100% mental signal. You have to start with intent. As you said, you have to frame it, kind of set the context. It's such a powerful tool that we so often under underuse. Yes, definitely is. 
Some, and I'll give just a short example, and then we'll jump into the next one. Um, the idea when someone says something that I want to build on, I will often say, yes, but instead of that's a brilliant idea, let me add to it. And what they yeah. hear is, you disagree with me, and I have to defend myself, instead of you think I'm brilliant, and we're on the same page. Yes, and the key there is the but word, because mm-hmm. whenever you transition with but, it sounds like where you're going is going to contradict where you just came from. And I've noticed in human behavior, many people just seem to use but as a transitional word, and they're not meaning to contradict. They're trying to add something, but uh, it's going to backfire. Uh, in those cases, it would be better to first backtrack, say back what the person has said to you to make sure they know that you have heard them and understand them, then stop and take a breath for a moment. Because uh, whenever people feel understood, you score major rapport points with them. Ding, 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 ding. You do not want to rush past that moment. You want to give them the satisfaction of being understood. But then what you're also doing is testing. Are they ready to hear something else or do they have more to say? Because if they have more to say, you don't want to try to talk. You want to hold them by the ankles, turn them upside down and shake out everything they could possibly want to say. Once they've said it all, there's nothing left to do but hear what you have to say. So you would go, oh, blah, 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 blah. Then you stop and breathe. And if they don't jump into the space, you go, and what I think is also important in this case is blah, blah, blah. And now you can add to it. Wonderful. I think that's a really helpful suggestion. So so now let's talk about emails. Why are there so many misunderstandings and what are some of the ways to make sure that we aren't creating conflict in in just basic emailing? Well, uh, one thing in email is the first line after the greeting. Okay. Hi, so-and-so. Hope you're well or whatever that little greeting is. The first line should be a statement of intent. What's the point of this email? What do you want? from this person. But here's another thing. Uh, Back uh, in 1967, a professor named Albert Moravian at UCLA did an experiment. He made a film of some people communicating. He then took the soundtrack off the film, ran through a synthesizer, made the words incomprehensible, but tone, volume, and speed were intact. He then had a transcript prepared of what was said. He gathered a group of people. He shows them the film. There's no sounds, no words. Then he plays the audio recording there's no images and no actual words just and then he lets them read the transcript and most people think this is three different interactions that's a business meeting those people are angry these are obviously good friends they're shocked to learn no it's all the same interaction he says well what do you think is really going on and based on their responses he concludes that 55 percent of the meaning we make in a communication is how it looks to us 38% is how it sounds to us, which is volume, speed, and tone, and only 7% is the actual words that are spoken. Now, I'm sure your listeners will remember the show Candid Camera. In case anybody doesn't, they would have a weird situation, have a hidden camera, see what people would do when they wandered into it. When they got off of network TV and onto videotape, they had an outrageous version. They took over a doctor's waiting room. They hired a bunch of actors and actresses to sit around the waiting room, reading magazines, waiting for the doctor, except they're dressed only in their underwear. Real patients would come in, be shocked, and then in a minute, they would just undress, hang up their clothes, and sit down and wait for the doctor. I see it. It must be so. Uh, 38%. Now, that's less how it sounds, but it's not less important. Tone of voice is taken more personally than any other part of our communication. 7% words, a lot less, but not unimportant, because one word can be a buzzword or trigger. 
So what this is really telling us is what's going to happen when there's a mismatch. So, for example, I'm sure all your listeners have been customers and somebody is at some point has been customer serving them and they say, have a nice day. Now, do you think this service person really cares about your day? Well, why not? They said the magic words, have a nice day. The way it sounds doesn't match. When there's a mismatch, we believe the higher number. Now, in general, when you're communicating successfully, all your channels are going in the same direction. And one of the most common problems we create is the mismatch between how we sound and what gets said, because how we sound reflects emotional state. So you could even have positive intentions. You know, maybe I'm upset about something, but I'm not upset with you. And I'm now I'm interacting with you. So I put a lid on it and I suppress that upset. But then uh, and my conscious mind picks my words. But then the upset leaks out a little bit through the tone. And that's the problem that it's emotional tone. And so now circling back to email, the problem is that the tone is projected on your email by the receiver based on their stress level, based on their blood sugar curve and everything they've got going on at that moment. And so you really have to be careful of this. And sometimes, in fact, not sometimes, you have to set up some really strict rules for yourself on when to bail on email and be in an interactive moment. And I'd say number one, most important, is if you suspect emotional content, if you're having a strong reaction to whatever you're reading, if you think uh, they're having some kind of emotional reaction, you got to pull the ripcord and bail on email. You will get so much further faster because otherwise uh, the other person is free to hallucinate as to how they think you sound uh, when they when they say it. Uh, so really, I think the, the bottom line with email is know when to bail on email. And number one is when there's you suspect a strong emotional response on their part or your part. That's really helpful. So if I see an email and I... I can't imagine there's anyone listening who hasn't had this issue that you send an email that seems sane and rational and what you get back is a level of response that seems mismatched at a minimum to what you've said. So in that point, do you just pick up the phone? Do you Zoom call somebody? Is there a preferred method? Well, I'd say, yeah, you want to be interactive. So Picking up the phone is considered interactive. Uh, Zoom call, plus if you have video too, that's interactive. You know, because let's say, oh, you know, I don't want you to feel this way. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's such a misunderstanding. Listen to all that. That's all of reflecting emotion. That's a lot of good communication there. That's where the the juice is. It's not in it's not in your words. Not to mention. I mean, have you ever reread an email the next day? Have you noticed there are sentences in there that were not in there the day before? Why? Is that because email elves came in at night and added to it? No, it's because we have seven bits of attention. We read something that triggers us in thought, and then we miss all this other stuff. So, yes, I say pick up the phone or do the Zoom call, but be interactive. Okay, great. Um, so what I hear a lot of is I see or hear or Uh, uh, both tone or words something my brain has only a small attention span and I make a meaning to something Uh, and in some cases my reaction is not appropriate what's a quick way to change my own reaction well, you would uh, ask yourself what you want uh, internally in that situation, you know, at some point apart from the, uh, the moment and what might quality you might need. And then you'd ask yourself, where do you have it? So, for example, I had a security salesman 
who uh, wanted to be determined in the face of failure. Because when a client would cancel an account, he'd feel like a failure in his face afraid to face his next appointments. I ask him, all right, where in your life can you be determined in the face of a so-called failure? It could be any unrelated situation. Don't worry about it. And he says, well, playing softball, I play third base on a team. If I bobble the ball, I make an error. I don't get down on myself. I don't quit the game. I get more focused. I lean in. I'm going to get the next one. He goes, wow, it's the total opposite at work. So he has it at softball. He needs it at work. I had another patient who needed to be more assertive with her boss, especially when he's yelling. I asked, all right, uh, where can you be assertive? She couldn't think of a good where. That's okay. If you don't have a where, you're always going to have a who. I said, who do you think could handle your boss the way you'd love to? And she says, Catherine Hepburn. She'd show him. So what you want is a model. Who has the quality you want, which could be yourself in a different context, or it could be a, a character. Uh, it doesn't have, you know, she doesn't know Catherine Hepburn personally, but the archetype that Catherine Hepburn portrayed. I had a guy who wanted to jump up first thing in the morning and exercise. He modeled his dog because first thing in the morning, dog's like, oh, no, no, let's go out, let's go out. So when we come back, we can uh, discuss more about how you then own that new attitude. I love the idea that we model our dogs. My dog is sitting right behind me, ready to go out. So as we get done, I will probably be out walking. So for our listeners, uh, as we go into break, I love the idea of changing our reactions by reframing where am I more successful or who would be more successful. So as you think about a difficult communication you may have had, who would have done it better or when would your better, how would your better self have done it? And we'll be right back. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership co-creating our future to reach maureen metcalf or her guest today please call 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 or send an email to info at innovative leadership now back to this week's program Welcome back to innovating leadership co-creating our future you're with maureen metcalf and dr rick brinkman and we are talking about 
how to bring out the best in people when they are at their worst, and in some cases when we are at our worst. So before break, we were talking about adjusting our own attitude. Rick, uh, will you continue to build on what you were talking about? Yes. So we were talking about picking a model, which could be like yourself in a different context, like how the security salesman is playing softball. It could be uh, another person or character like uh, Catherine Hepburn, uh, the one patient who modeled the dog. Uh, I know when I was learning to speak in front of groups, I asked myself who would be calm and centered in front of 200 people. And I thought of Kwai Chang Kane from the Kung Fu television show. Uh, late 70s, David Carradine, his Kung Fu master in the Old Wild West. And I would just sit and pretend to be Kwai Chang. Imagine what he feels, how he uh, acts and thinks. So what we want to do is create an association. An association is a trigger. You hear a song, it takes you back. You smell something, you're transported through time. You didn't purposely create that. Your mind just does it for you. Uh, there's two things that make an association really stick. One is uh, repetition, like the song that plays over and over and over at a certain time in your life. And the second is intensity. If you get sick on a certain food, it's a while before you you want to eat that food. So what you have to do is sit down one time, eyes closed, and get inside your model. So I ask security salesman, pretend you're playing softball. All right, feel what it's like in your body. Now you drop the ball what happens he goes well i tell myself shake it off i say listen to the tone in which you speak to yourself he goes oh yeah different than work i take a deep breath i shake my shoulders and i have him explore what he has in softball uh with the woman i'm asking her, get inside katherine hepburn's body notice how she holds herself what does she think what does she feel and we really concentrate on all the sensory detail for about two minutes and then i ask him open her eyes for a second all right let's now do it one more time and find more detail and again two minutes in and then maybe 10 seconds out and then another third time so you're doing three repetitions and you're concentrating on the details of the experience then your next step is to transplant it now i would suggest while you're concentrating on the details of your model or whatever interlace your hands and every time you get a piece of what what it is that you want give your hands a gentle squeeze so with the security salesman i tell myself shake it off squeeze i take a deep breath squeeze and what you want to do is purposely create an association between the squeeze your hands and the internal state then in that next step all right so now here i am in my office the phone rings the client is telling me He's canceling, and then just at the end point of that fantasy, when he's hanging up the phone, he puts his hands together for real, he squeezes, and all of a sudden, boom, he's right back there uh, in that state of being that he has playing softball, and then you repeat that a bunch of times, and it's, again, it's repetition, so if you just mentally do this, and and here's the thing, you know how if you have an obnoxious re, uh event with somebody your mind shows you reruns oh they said that i felt bad they said i felt bad think about what you're doing you're doing rep reps to the way it was the next time you see the person you'll feel bad even more quickly because we've been practicing in our spare time minds will be minds you can't not do this you are going to replay the past and preplay the future the only thing you can do is consciously harness that process and decide all right what do i want where do i have it create the association to it and then every time it occurs to you no no this is how i would have done it this is what i would have said refuse to show see these reruns that your mind shows you always correct it the way you would have liked to be feeling what you would have wanted to feel saying what you wanted to say then when you think about the future oh, i'm going to be in that meeting with that guy tomorrow okay this is how i'm going to feel this is what I'm going to say. And uh, believe me, if you just take your cues from your own mind, you're going to do more than enough repetitions. And you will amazingly change your reactions to anybody and anything. 
I love the idea that the mind continually continues to rerun the past and pre-play the future. And what you're recommending is just that we build on the thing our brain already does and insert the step of correcting for the erroneous, I'm going to feel bad and replace it with the intent of I'm going to be successful, whatever defines success for that situation. Yes, exactly. Minds will be minds. I mean, and it's good. They have to be. Oh, I touched that hot stove. I remember that was not good. Oh, I'm not going to do that again. You know, it's just part of our our programming. So you got to use your mind on purpose. I, again, I love the idea that we can recognize what our brain does. It, it's no longer wrong that my my brain replays things. We all have it, and just using what is innately programmed as humans in a way that's very deliberate. Yes. Okay, so you talked about then other significant areas like intent that uh, you would also like to cover. Can you share those with us? Absolutely. Uh, I remember I was in my uh, office with a couple. It was the end of the visit. Everybody's feeling good. Suddenly she turns to him and says, honey, let's go to the Rose Gardens. And he goes, nah. And she goes, oh, okay. And I go, wait a second. What's your intent right now? Why do you want to go to the Rose Garden? She says, well, we're feeling close to when you have in a long time. We have an hour before we have to pick up the kids. I thought it'd be nice to spend some quiet time together. And he goes, that's a great idea. I don't, I don't want to be outside. Too hot, too buggy. How about the cafe we've been meaning to try? She says, sure. Now, studio audience, does she really care about uh, going to the Rose Gardens? No, what she cares about is spending time together. That's the intent. Rose Gardens is just a way to do it. But why Rose Gardens? Why not dinner for two or a movie or a cruise? Well, the next level is criteria. I mean, let's think about this, okay? They only have an hour before we have to pick up the kids, so there's a time criterion. Maybe geography goes along with that. It's on the way home. Maybe there's budgetary criteria. It won't cost us anything. Uh, maybe there's atmospheric criteria. It's a place of special meaning or no meaning. And whenever people have an idea or point of view, it originates with intent. They run their intent through the relevant criteria and out pops the idea or point of view. But I've noticed in human behavior, more often than not, we do not communicate our intent and criteria. We just do what uh, she does and just spontaneously say rose gardens. And he thinks, nah. Once he gets time together, he understands the intent. He adds a few more criteria, and it becomes the cafe. What you want to do as a conscious communicator is train yourself to communicate intent, criteria, idea. So if she was doing that, she'd say she wouldn't lead with Rose Garden. She would lead with, you know, um, we're feeling close. We have a long time. We Intent. It'd be nice to spend some time together. So I'm thinking what would fit within an hour, be on the way home, won't cost us anything. What do you think about the Rose Gardens? On the other hand, as a conscious communicator, when you receive communication, you can't depend on people to be clear. So that's your first goal is to understand them. So when she says spontaneously Rose Gardens, he doesn't go, nah. He goes, why do you want to do that? That would reveal the intent. Okay, but what makes you say Rose Gardens? Then we'd find out the criteria. Uh, And really... A criteria is the key to unlock the know-it-all's mind. The reason that somebody, when somebody's being a know-it-all, that they believe their ideas get from God is based on their criteria set. And if you extract their criteria uh, and they get that you get their criteria, it becomes very easy to add uh, another one to the list. So this seems, again, like an incredibly practical and important tool. Uh, just like early on, we talked about uh, instead of saying, yeah, but – 
restate what we've heard from them. In this case, it, it is just simply asking the question, uh, why? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the most powerful skills you can ever do is develop the ability to put aside what you have to say and let people feel understood first. If you can do that at will, you can't get in an argument with anyone because an argument is nothing more than two people who want to be understood at the same time really badly and nobody can do it. It seems like a very simple tool, but not easy to actually do. Well, like anything you do, once you're conscious of it and you start, you know, put a little uh, conscious effort into it, it just becomes an automatic thing that you do. Uh, You know, there's these five areas that create conflict. Um, One is that uh, the tone and words mismatch, right? Uh, When it comes to rock, paper, scissor words, tone, tone crushes words. Uh, The other one is you want to let people feel understood first and then while you're doing that, the th- there's three big things you want to understand. One is intent, which we talked about. The second is criteria. And then the third is something called behavioral definitions. So, for example, uh, once my co-author and I found out we had completely different strategies for dealing with upset, if he's upset, he wants somebody to jump in, ask him a lot of questions, and force him to process through it. If I'm upset, I want people to leave me alone. So, with good intentions, when he'd get upset, I'd leave him alone. And he'd feel abandoned. And when I would be upset, the guy would annoy me with questions. As soon as we found that out about each other, I asked my wife that night, how would you know if I supported you in your career? She said, I didn't. I said, I did and vice versa. And it came down to behavioral definitions. Support for me was logistics and space. Support for her was validation. So with good intentions, I'm giving her logistics and space, no validation. She's giving me validation of space. You want to do unto others, you want them to do unto you, but it's got to be in a way they understand. You always know the issue is behavioral definitions. If somebody says, you don't blank, whatever, love me, care, support, whatever, and you know you do, that's a clear signal behavioral definition. So you'd make a statement of intent, look, I really want you to feel like I support you. Tell me, how would you know if I supported you? And then you'd clarify. And then how do you know that I don't support you? If, if anybody's familiar with the books, The Love, Five Love Languages, that's all behavioral definitions. And that's a really, for people who aren't used to that, even in the workplace, they have a take on how do we clarify those definitions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said there were five. We've gone through tone, let people feel understood, understanding intent, criteria, and behavioral definitions, which sounds incredibly useful. And I use this with clients, even simple stuff like when we're setting guiding principles or we're onboarding someone new, we all, most of us say we want people to, we want to communicate openly. What does that mean? Because it may mean something very different for me than it does for you. Yes, definitely. Openly. So I should share, oh, gosh, today I had a fight with my wife. Or is it if speak up at the meeting or we would have to define what open openly yeah, ho- is. Hopefully yeah. it's speak up in the meeting, not tell me about your personal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're a close friend. Right? Yes. Uh-huh. Work right. context. Mm-hmm. Business focus. So you were talking about the conflict. Yes, well, those are the. I've noticed that if you really pay attention to those five things, you're going to eliminate at least half the conflict in your life. Got it. Okay. 
So is there anything else? We're coming close to the end. We've talked about conflict. We've talked about what makes people difficult. And I will make the the assumption that most people have positive intent and they are going unconscious and reacting to an innate need, um, uh, something that is coming from that's causing them to behave in a way that seems uh, frustrating to us. And then you've talked about one of the things that really stands out to me is the importance of managing my own reaction and through my own consciousness, choosing my intent, choosing the criteria, choosing the behavioral tone I want so that I can get the, the outcome I'm looking for. What are there other tools in the last few minutes that you want to make sure our listeners walk away with? Well, let's talk about the meeting context because a, a business meeting tends to be a situation that brings out the worst in people because uh, there's too many meetings, there's too much time wasted. And uh, it's actually very simple to transform meetings because everybody hates meetings universally. So if you take what I'm about to say and suggest to somebody who runs a meeting, how'd you like to hear an idea that makes our meeting shorter, focused, and more productive? It's a rare human being who says, no, we don't want that. What will we do for wasted time and misery? So here's the thing. There's three things that have to be put in place in a meeting. We need to be focused. We all need to be focused on the same thing at the same time in the same way. You can't have one person brainstorming and the other person is thinking about what's wrong with an idea. Uh, we have to have some kind of balanced participation because typically some people are going to talk too much, all those assertive people, and all your passive people are going to drop out and you're going to lose uh, their contribution. And then we want to flight record. Whatever we're discussing should be made visual so we could see it on a screen, like maybe on a PowerPoint slide. We bullet what people summarize. Now, we have two eyes to see from two points of view. Imagine your two eyes arguing over whose point of view is correct. Well, that's absurd. They're both slightly different. They're both correct. And when your brain synthesizes them, you see three dimensions. So what I like to put in place in a meeting is the goal is holographic thinking, that we really hear from everybody, which means we have to control not letting some people talk too much and others too little. So here's the thing. First of all, there always has to be a speaking order. It could be circular. We just go around the room or it could be voluntary. Uh, you always have a time limit let's say two minutes for any time you're making a point uh, and that will immediately control uh, your assertive people and it will allow your passive people to participate especially circular that's my favorite unless you have too many people circular is the best then we flight record and we uh, put every what people say on the board and when we see it we see all the factors all at once visually and that lets us go into holographic thinking Wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate the the quick summary of an entire book in a minute and a half. (laughs) There's more. (laughs) I assume there is. So how would listeners learn more? Obviously, they can buy your books. How else? Well, they certainly could visit uh, uh, drrickbrinkman.com, Dr. RickBrinkman.com, and there's all kinds of resources uh, there. Uh, There's plenty of videos on YouTube and and Vimeo, and uh, I do private consultations, too, with people. Uh, Usually that's done remotely uh, via Skype or such. You said you're located in Oregon, right, so we can all pop up to your house? Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) Man on the left in the trees over there. (laughs) 
So, thank you. So, so as we summarize, then a vital skill of leadership is learning how to bring out the best in everyone. And brilliantly, Dr. Rick Brinkman talked about his book, Dealing with People You Can't Stand, How to Bring Out the Best in People at Their Worst. And I really like the focus on one of the priorities is I can't walk away saying that guy's an idiot. I have to look at my own reaction, clarify my intent, change my behavior, and I have to be the one who makes the adjustment first, and that by its very nature will cause the other person to adjust their tone, adjust their response, and we assume make small adjustments in their own behavior. Exactly. I pronounce you conscious communicator, first class. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) If you see me tonight, you may not think that. (laughs) So to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Rick, for sharing your wisdom. And we trust that you will tune in again for another interview and that you will practice part of what Dr. Rick has mentioned and improve your own communication. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.